Hi, I'm Stacey Schumacher-Rowan, Editor-in-Chief of Hospitality Design Magazine with HD's What I've Learned podcast. Ty Farrow is a bit of a philosopher when it comes to design, seeking out projects that inspire hope where the future is unknown. He cut his teeth with renowned German-Canadian architect Eberhard Ziedler before starting his namesake firm in Toronto in 2004. It's here that Ty launched his visionary cause health movement, which creates places where people can thrive through an intricate co-creation process. In fact, his firm is working on a slew of audacious projects, including the ambitious Venice Archipelago, which proposes a necklace of new and existing linked islands that promote ecological health in a city that is being devastated by climate change. Hi, I'm here with Ty. Thanks so much for joining me today. Great to see you. It's been a while, that's for sure. I know. So nice. Even though it's virtually, it's still so good to see you. That's true. Well, we always start the podcast at the beginning. So where did you grow up? I grew up uh, just out of Toronto, outside of Toronto, Canada, about an hour on on a beautiful small town on the north shores of Lake Ontario at sort of a river edge, Uh, you know, a very... Uh, tight downtown walkable city uh you know like a, a new england town you know a, a, a sort of a british plan with wide lots but uh i i was after i was born a month after i was born my father who is an architect retired he built a richard neutra uh style or influenced house um, and so we moved in. And so being on a street that was all traditional houses and this Richard Neutra house that had, you know, this beautiful brick wall of crafted bricks, handcrafted bricks with a gap in the middle that you went into a courtyard and the glazing beyond. Um, it was very different. Um, and it was, I remember walking down the street and somebody saying, you know, your parents must not be social because there's no windows on the front. And so I think it's interesting growing up in in a small town, but in a in a building that is uh, very optimistic, um, very uh, open, certainly on the inside and outwards. Um, but clearly, uh, that you know was the beginning of of something, certainly as it related to design. And I think uh, sometimes things that are a little different than maybe you know what's around it or in its in its context. Yeah, no. And so your dad was an architect. So that's where you probably got a lot of your influence too, was from him. Yeah, I, I definitely, I, I mean, certainly growing up, uh, you know, in, in the early years of high school, I worked in his office. He had quite a significant firm in the, in the city of Toronto that had quite a reach and, you know, being young, being the young kid in and doing all the drawings, in fact, all the illustrations for major projects um it it was uh you know the early days and and i suspect something that really developed uh you know this this love of the environment around you and how it can can change and and significantly influence i believe your your outlook as you as you move forward right was your mom creative as well uh i wouldn't say in the similar sense like she didn't work um she was, I think it was in the years that you were thought to tend the household and look after the children. And and the house was very beautiful and very modern and a lot of Scandinavian, you know, furniture and and perfect and, and quite particular, not in an obsessive way. 
but uh, I think she had her hands full uh, on on that side of the front, which you know was obviously uh, was very important as uh, you know growing up and that uh, uh, that sometimes you don't see as much these days for a whole variety of, of different reasons, or it's more complicated. I think um, that's for sure. Sure. So did you go to school then for architecture? Was that um, the path you took in terms of education? Yeah, I started out and when I uh, was in high school, I, I set up my own advertising company, looking after all of the businesses downtown. And I was very busy going to school as well as as running that within this this community. And so we had or I had, I don't know how many clients, but certainly probably about 20 of them with all the, the print advertising and everything else. And that was interesting, but I think along the way that you you began to realize it was somewhat temporal, that it, um, it was something that came and, and went. And I think the idea of moving into something that was obviously tied to the community in, 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 in a, a different way in architecture, that it was more permanent, it would have more influence um, as opposed to something that was there and and sort of uh, finished. And so I went to the University of Toronto. Uh, I did a degree there. I went to Europe and and worked and then went back to Harvard and did a degree uh, at the GSD in architecture and urban design um, and then went back and did a degree in, in architecture and neuroscience. And just before the pandemic in Venice as a fly-in student uh, while running the practice. Um, but I think there's, and I suspect I'll go on and, and explore some of the ideas that came out of that, uh, you know, do it in the form of a, a PhD, but I, I need to get organized on, on that front. But I think, I mean, the idea of the, the intersection of the two, uh, ensuring that you know um, the noodle is is continually challenged on on you know what your interests are. Amazing. So wait, can we go back to the fact that you were a high schooler and you had your own advertising agency? <laughs> what, how did how did that come about? Like, was that um, was that all you? Was you know like what what was kind of the um, the push that made you do that at such a young age? Well, I was working in uh, a small business as a, you know, as a, a kid that was, you know, doing things. And and I thought that how they were expressing themselves and connecting to the, the community around them probably could have been better. And so I proposed to them that maybe they could communicate through their advertising uh, in, a, in a different way. And so I did some sketches and I came in and said, you know, maybe you could do it this way. And they were very excited about it. And it, it ended up getting into quite a, a big campaign. And then other people thought, wow, this is amazing. Would you do the same for us? And so I think it was a result of you had an idea on how something could be better. And so you had the voice to say, well, what do you think of this? Can Can we give it a try? And I think that, in fact, has a relationship to a variety of things that we're doing uh, today. I think that's continued through, um, uh, you know, from the early early stages on trying something and trying to change something and then getting some currency um, as it moved along. Right. So, so um, you went to school. Uh, what was your first job out of school? What 
did you work for a bigger firm or, you know, what was your path before forming your own practice? So, as I said, my father had quite a successful practice and I, and I worked there. But when I did my thesis at the University of Toronto, uh, one of the architects that was coming in to teach it was a practicing architect in Toronto and arguably one of Canada's most celebrated architects, a man called Eb Zeidler, and he designed the Eden Centre and the Galleria and, and transformed that and transformed a lot of building types in the hospitality sector and the office uh, sector. And so I did my thesis under him and we really connected. And we were very much in alignment. He had a very big practice in the city, um, offices across Canada, and in fact was at the point in his career that was expanding uh, internationally. And so when I finished the thesis, he asked if I would work for him, that he had a, a major competition in Cologne, Germany, uh, called Media Park, which was a big um, old railway lands. And so we were submitting and competing against Jean Nouvel and, and a variety of significant um, uh, people. And so we worked through the summer and did that and submitted it. And then I left and uh, went to London. And I thought I didn't have a job, but I thought I'd give it a go. And so I went to London and I started, I was interviewed for by Foster and by Richard Rogers and and James Sterling. And that was just uh, in the 80s before Black Monday and the crash. And they really didn't have a lot of work. And so uh, Terry Farrell, you know, who's a postmodernist at the time, was doing a lot of major projects in the city. Uh, I started working for him. But then uh, I came back at Christmas and Eb Zeidler said, we've been shortlisted for the project in Cologne, would you, you know, take a leave of absence for London and come and work for me to, to submit it? We submitted it and we won the competition. And at that time, then uh, he, I went back and worked in London again for a while. And then he said, would you set up an office? We're setting up an office in London. Would you come and work for me uh, with one other guy? And so, um, it was amazing then to, you know, set up an office uh, in London when there was a lot of amazing things happening and and working on projects in King's Cross or Canary Wharf or some really significant projects at a very young age uh, was amazing because they were all at, you know, at a, at, at a major scale. And so then I, I did that for a while and then I applied to the GSD at Harvard and then uh, did a Master of Architecture and urban design uh, there. But I think clearly the the influence of uh, the scale of the city um, and getting out of your backyard, getting out of Canada, um, working in Europe, I think being in Europe at a time uh, that was very frothy. That was the period when Prince Charles was battling, you know, all of the moderns and, and the addition to the the, the National Gallery on Trafalgar Square was very controversial. You know, Foster and Rogers had really some exuberant schemes. And Prince Charles, I think, said it was a carbuncle on the face of an old friend. But uh, in the newspaper, like the, the, the Times, there would be a full-page response from these architects uh, against, uh, you know, Charles, saying that we should be looking at things that are more forward and optimistic and to be in the city and to have the debate that everybody was discussing architecture uh, was was amazing. 
So amazing. And what was one of your favorite projects that you worked on um, with Ed over in London? Uh, I think um, the the one project that we won, this one in Cologne, again, it was railway lands. But what we created was the whole basis of it was creating a square and a lake and a park. And then surrounding that, so the buildings, the buildings weren't the object, that they were really the piece that surrounded the public space. The, the public space and it was residential and offices and and a variety of other things. But I think what was it very influential that it wasn't per se about the architecture. It was the architecture creating a new major civic space uh, in the city and a major park and lake that hadn't existed on industrial lands. And I think the basis of that has really informed all of the work that we've done moving forward in in the sense that um, uh, it's the places clearly in between that are the most important parts. And arguably that one would say right now with the pandemic and leading uh, going through that, I think we've reimagined a lot of public space um, uh, and discovered it's the important piece of, of the uh, the piece, and so I think that certainly um, has infused everything we we do and continue to do. Why did you decide to go back to get your master's at Harvard? Uh, I think it was um, uh, that a I was playing it in the zone of the city, and um, the idea of not just doing another master of architecture degree, but again to challenge you in a different zone that uh, that you touched on, had an interest in. I think certainly London is an extraordinary city because, um, you know, it's all about these squares. And even if the squares aren't public, they are extraordinarily immersive. Um, and it's a very different type. And so again, it's the space. And so going back to Harvard and, and uh, Rodolfo Maneo was leading... Uh, uh, the cause there, you know, Rem Cool House was in regularly. I mean, it was a real hotbed and to be, you know, immersed in that uh, was amazing. And I think it just obviously upped your game. And I think the other thing that was great was it was living in another city. I was living in Boston at Charles and Chestnut Street, just off the common and commuting into, into Cambridge. And so I think it's not only the school, but it's the experience of, of being there um, and and taking that away with you that was, I think, very important on, on the experience. Right. And so after Harvard, is that when you set up your own firm or was there another step? I came back and I, I worked for Ebb Seidler for a while and then I joined my father's firm. It was a good-sized firm. We were very busy. Um uh, and at the time, he was doing a lot of projects in the healthcare sector. And so I was pulled into projects. I'd never designed any healthcare project, but I was brought into those. Um, but um, uh, CEO of one of them wanted me to design a major building as opposed to the senior designer in the firm uh, because I wasn't coming at it from that perspective. And I think uh, the guy who was the senior 
guy at the time, we thought very differently on what the role of architecture was. And I had thought I would probably spend the rest of my career in his firm. And at that stage, I thought, you know, I, he thinks, you know, it should be black. I think it should be white. And it's not that I didn't believe, you know, that he was, it was about being a right or wrong. And so at that stage, I thought, I'm going to go and set up my own practice and I'm not going to battle with him. I have a different belief. Uh, I believe strongly in the underpinnings of what you do. So I left. And at that time, which was interesting, was the CEO of that firm who are of the of that hospital had a major cancer center coming out and he went to my father's firm and said we'd like to continue to work with you but we want Ty to design it and so we're going to go out for a proposal call or they said so will you bring him in as a, a joint venture uh, firm and the, the senior designer said I'm not working with him he's an outside firm so they went out for a proposal call that firm lost the work and we gained it and it's an interesting story about <laughs> collaborating and the importance of being open to different different opinions uh, and maybe not dying on a cross uh, at certain stages. And so that launched us into a zone we had no experience in. Uh, but uh, two of the projects uh, were recognized, I think, globally as, as very influential in, in changing what were usually miserable buildings that you didn't want anything to do with. And yeah, I mean, if you went to a cocktail party and they say, oh, what do you do? And you say, well, we design hospitals. And I think you could see their eyes glaze over. Uh, but these uh, were very significant in, in uh, or at least we were told they were seen to be significant in changing really the whole idea that these places can cause health uh, as a result of, of the architecture and the feedback from the CEO of the one hospital was that they were trying to hire people from, you know, the, the whole East Coast significant hospitals. And now these doctors that would walk in, would walk in and say, you know, I feel something different here. I'm feeling as if I'm part of something bigger. And, and I think that's important in, in everything we begin to do. Why do you think that was such a novel idea? Like, why do you think hospitals hadn't thought about the relationship between building and one's health? Well, I think uh, at a time there was a real idea that, and arguably we're just moving out of it, that that hospitals and medicine were pathogenic based. Yeah. It was uh, patho and genesis, patho, um, you know, disease and, and genesis, the origin um, they were all about stopping something bad from happening, that if you had an illness, you were a container that was holding this illness, and the medicine was a machine to deal with that. And the whole shift from a pathogenic view to what we were doing uh, was a salutogenic view and saluto health, and again, what are the causes of health? And and that, in fact, we then went to a conference by a guy called Alan Delaney, the Academy for Design and Health, where we began to, I began to see that what we were trying to do was, in fact, the basis of salutogenesis, which is the basis of all our work. And in fact, those two healthcare buildings uh, got the top awards. And I was chosen by that body as uh, one architect from 35 countries 
to get the the first architect award from the Academy of Design and Health. But it was at an inkling that you began to realize that that there was other elements that the environment um, not only had an effect on your body, um, it not only affect on the the natural environment, but on your mind, on how you feel and how you can feel better. And it is a fundamental basis. In fact, that's what led me. I discovered um, um, uh, really the neuroscience architecture thing that again had parallels to what I was trying to discover. And I thought, well, let's jump in. Not particularly different than jumping into the urban design degree at Harvard was then going to the University of Venice, one of 15 uh, students that were chosen from around the world. It's one of only two programs in the world that is focused on that. And flying in there a week, a month um, was amazing and being taught by the top arguably neuroscientists in the world, uh, sociologists, physiologists, uh, psychologists, architects. Stephen Hall was uh, one of the profs. But you're, you're 15 people and interacting with these people and debating and discussing, uh, is, is amazing. Again, to try and deepen one's understanding of, um, the, uh, the physiological and psychological aspects of environments and how we can use them to create the conditions where we thrive, where we work, where we heal, where we live, where we play. Um, uh, there's, Arguably, no more important time than now that we are feeling vulnerable and the space has the ability to to give us that extra spring in our step. This might be a silly question, but what were some of your biggest takeaways from that time in Venice um, or anything surprising or, you know, I'm sure there's many things, but, you know, was there one kind of big takeaway um, from your time uh, in that amazing program? Uh, I, I, I think the main thing was sort of twofold. One is you often hear of evidence-based design and, you know, what are the facts that are confirming, you know, if we should go this way or that way. And design, as you know, sometimes can be very difficult around that. And intuitively, we know this stuff in our stomach. We can feel we know that it's intuitively right. The amazing thing was going into this this program was, uh, and what my thesis was based on is that uh, the facts confirmed from a neurobiological standpoint. With fMRIs, we can we can scan the mind and and know how we react. That are cognitive and precognitive things, but. The basis, which was the thesis, and I did very well in that program, in fact, I'm teaching there now, um, was that we construct our person-to-place relationships, you and your environment, we construct them the same way on an emotional standpoint and in the mind that we construct person-to-person relationships. So the way the, the qualities of this discussion that we're having together, that you feel open and engaged and you feel that you can share and you feel confident around that, the qualities of those things, instead of an abusive relationship, are the same ways that we construct our relationships with physical space. And they tie back to, if you think of mentors that you had that were generous 
and the relationships had a lot of vitality and variety to them. They were authentic. Uh, they were optimistic and a sense of occurrence, uh, but they were also natural and solid and still in silence. Um, those are the same qualities um, that we have enriched relationships uh, with physical space. And so that were, they were intuitive, I think, within me, but now I've got a full-time neuroscientist that is working on research. It'll be, a, I think, a fairly significant book coming out in a year's time that we have sponsors that are backing it on uh, four continents. Uh, it's an area that there hasn't been a lot of emphasis to it, but I think it's important because once we bring it forward, I think it will allow people to connect the dots about the things, certainly as designers and architects that we intuitively know. But in fact, for the clients, um, when you begin to get into this discussion, uh, they can really connect to it and say, yeah, I remember somebody who mentored me who was, you know, who was authentic and genuine and, and, and those, those characteristics. And so I think what we're trying to do is, is, you know, once people see it, I, you can't unsee it. For sure. And you've been, I mean, you've been at the forefront of this idea, um, for many years, um, about how buildings can, you know, help with your health. And now this is obviously the next layer that you're adding, which is amazing. But can you go back a bit to talk about your cause health m movement and what you wanted to, what you started? Um, cause I think that's, uh, really important to this conversation. Well, I, I think the architecture and design industry is very much focused on the ecological aspects of health, which is clearly very important on a whole variety of different fronts. But for me, the analogy of optimal health, how do you activate optimal health? The analogy is like a house that has a roof on it. And that roof is optimal health, but it's supported by four walls. And one of those walls is how design impacts uh, ecological health. And we know there's a significant piece. So that's one wall. The second wall is how design has an impact on physical health. And so the whole rise of chronic diseases in the 1940s was the way we designed and created suburbs and a, a car-dominated area. And it, it raised, it came forward into food deserts, or I would call them food swamps. There's lots of food, but all of it is very bad for you. So that's the second wall. The third wall is design and its impact on societal health. And so uh, a professor of mine from Harvard, he just has a great book out that was discussing how if you look at Black Lives Matter, for example, that we designed and segre segregated and separated people very intentionally by the way we created cities. And so clearly design can have a significant impact on civic or civil civil health or all of the EDI, equity, inclusion, diversion, or diversity and inclusion, the way we create messages through our buildings, either you're familiar with and you'll feel comfortable, but a lot of other people won't be. And the last wall that supports optimal health is this idea of mind health. And so the basis of the firm is what causes health? How can we construct health? How to make, how do buildings make us feel? And how can they make us feel better? What if mind health was the basis of judging every public space and every building? What happens if we no longer tolerate design that cause 
dis-ease, and I'm using that specifically, uncomfortable, uh, depression and, and boredom. And what if we created high-performance buildings and human performance buildings, which were accelerants for optimum, optimal health? Why is this relevant to what we build? There is no such thing as neutral space. What we create either causes health or enhances our experience of, of the world or it takes away from it. And that's where this idea of salutogenic historically from, you know, if you go back 5,000 years, health was the basis of everything we do. If you, if you look at ancient Chinese um, medicine, you know, as a fundamental basis of it, uh, what was it, it tied to? It was about cultivating harmony. If you look at Aristotle, it was about eudaimonia and this idea of human flourishing, you know, in 300 BC. If you went to Hippocrates, it was about, you know, a whole, you know, the arguably, I suppose, the father of medicine it wasn't just about treating disease. It was about uh, diet and lifestyle. Ancient Romans, think of the baths. Uh, and then in the 16, 1800s, you know, all of the herbal medicine and a variety of things, they, they came there. But then we shifted to a pathogenic view, which we discovered uh, germ, germ theory in the 1970s and the cholera epidemic, not particularly different than where we are now. But in 1910, there was this thing, this Fetzner report that came out that said, if it wasn't evidence-based um, medicine, it, it was, was witchcraft. And so, you know, and that sort of shifted into the wellness movement and, and Phil Knight and Nikes, you know, having shoes for running. And, and so I think it's the whole idea that we need to come back and we are discovering the role of health and well-being. And the pandemic has clearly shown that it's the one stage that we felt very vulnerable in what we did. Um, and, and the whole mental health, uh, rise. And so it's the whole shift, the beginning to ensure, sure, from a salutogenic basis is how can we actively cause health? And that's in the four legs, the four walls that support it is the, the fundamental basis of, of what we do in every project. Um, it, that is the discussion that we start with. Speaking of that discussion. So, what is your process? So you start with that question and then how do you, I mean, push clients or push ideas or continue to evolve this, you know, this amazing thought process that you've, you know, that you've established? Well, our process is we never come in with a design ever. And so we start that. In fact, we did one last night with a new client and we start off with a thing called a common ground and a critical eye session. And so we started out last night and and it is a an academic organization and uh they have a program to to facilitate a variety of things on their campus and that's all established but we started off and we came in and we said what's the ultimate purpose of this project why are we doing it when somebody says we have to accommodate this program okay uh it needs to be done on time and budget okay those are all fundamental things um, but what does it have to do about your, your vision, your value? How is it going to, when you walk onto the campus, what is the building going to radiate to you? 
how's it going to speak to who you are, your values of what you want to communicate? Um, and there was a very uh, intensive discussion, and that has students, it has teachers, it has faculty, professors, it has graduates, it has other people. Like, why is this important? And once you start the discussion, once you get up to the discussion at, at that level, then it changes the whole conversation. And secondarily, the second piece is we say, okay, here are all the words that you communicate on who you are, you know, that are about collaboration and values and openness and, and uh, known and loved and, and these things. And then we put up photographs of their existing building and say, okay, this is what you're saying. And this is what the space is. And then I'm not there to critique it and say this. I just put it up and say, you tell me what you see. And right. some of them, everybody, you know, laughs and said, this is crazy. And then we show pictures of other buildings, you know, uh, competitors or others and say, okay, these are your words. Uh, these are pictures. What do these things communicate? It's called a critical eye because what we want to do is give them the tools to be critical about what we bring forward. Then the next session is we bring in a big model of the campus with foam blocks and cardboard. And we say, okay, where should the front door be? And we get, somebody says, well, let's put it here. And so by using the blocks, 40 people around the table can rearrange it. So we come out with five different schemes out of that process. We draw it up and then we come bring them back. And so this whole co-creation process is fundamentally important because what it shifts away from buy-in that the architect is trying to sell his vision to somebody to believe in because everybody has seen all of the options and we're leading towards an area and we never go backwards. And in fact, we move from brittle, fragile support that somebody says, well, why did you do that instead of something else where people in the, in the group will pipe up and say, wow, we're doing this. We went that direction because it's better because of this, 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 this. And so I think as a result of it, we usually get projects that are much more um, robust or uh, I don't mean farsighted than they would have been going through another process. Right. And in fact, this project in Jerusalem, that's on one of the most in, in Israel on, you know, a, a city of over 5,000 years. Um, uh, across the street from where the prime ministers are buried, it looks like a butterfly. It's all made of timber in a city that's all made of Jerusalem stone. And we have to go in front of the, the chief architect who looks after a city. But we did this with a client and the CFO of the client, um, we did went through the planning process. Then we began looking at, at, at what it should be. And it comes from two things, the butterfly, an old fable, an old Jewish fable about a wise man and, and, a, and, a, and a cynic. Uh, and it also comes with the metaphor of the, the butterfly comes from, you know, a, you know, a, a caterpillar that, that, that changes and cancer is a similar thing. But just the fragility of life on a building that begins to communicate that in the heart of an ancient city. That here we were talking about a butterfly to the CFO of one of the world's great organizations. And now it's called a butterfly and all the, all, everybody else talks about it. And so I think all of that is very important on being able to go through a journey together. Yeah. Is there one project that, I mean, besides this one you were just mentioning, but 
Is there one project that you think really kind of exemplifies what you all do? Um, you know, either you're most proud of, I mean, it's hard to pick a, hard to pick a favorite child, but you're either most proud of, or it was a really complicated challenge that you think you and your team created a, a, a really great solution for. The Jerusalem one is one. The other one, uh, as you know, we're working on is this Venice project, and it's the Venice Archipelago project. And so um, it grew out of spending time in Venice, and I was there when the big flood occurred, and having water literally up to up to your uh, up to your waist, and trying to see a continue a city to continue on. It's it's extraordinary. The other overlay to it is as I walked back from. Um, a class every day. It was in the fall. It was in the night. And what was amazing was all the lights were on, um, on the, on the shop fronts. But, um, above the shop fronts, all the windows were dark. And what we began to realize is uh, a couple things. You know, Venice has evolved and grown since the 1100s. It was little islands or huts and it grew and grew and grew and it stopped in around the, the 1950s or so. Venice also in the 1960s had a population of 175,000 people, uh, but now it has 55,000 people. But every day pre-COVID, uh, 55,000 people were coming to the city every day as tourists, the same amount of people that, that live there. Wow. Uh, right now, a third of all the floors in the city are unoccupied because of flooding. And within 20 years, a third of the entire space will be underwater. There's no employment, there's great universities, uh, and nobody's staying there. And so the Archipelago Project is um, a continuous 20-mile connected ecological um, necklace of new and existing islands that wrap Venice. And so it begins to expand, expand and continue the history of growth. But this necklace uh, is, it keeps the... Um, the cruise ships out because Venice is dealing with the flooding, two floods, the flooding of water and the flooding of tourists. And so what this thing is, it's not just ecological, but it has a employment overlay because the necklace is a continuous um, 20 kilometer new park. But within the park, it's studded with pavilions that are uh, showcasing uh, agritech, Italian agritech. So they're creating few food security. They're creating jobs from people from the university that you can, you can stay. And so it's trying to address not only ecological health by stopping the flooding. There's locks between the islands. Think of Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. So there's still the porousness and the water going back and forth, which is important in, in the Laguna. It's creating, um, mind health in the sense that it's a decentral park that the Venetians can leave the dense city out into the natural area, not just blue, but green spaces. But then it's creating uh, employment and it's creating food security. And so all of these things are intertwined together to create a, a different future from Venice, which right now is just um, envisioned as better tourists, richer tourists. Tourists are staying longer. All the guys in my class at the university, extraordinary universities, they all leave because the only jobs that are there are in, in restaurants. Uh, the apartments are very expensive because they're all rented out to Airbnb. People have moved. And so the city has to change itself and it has to be economic, ecological and growing out of a cultural co-creation process. 
And so like all of our projects, those things are, are firmly intertwined. But we need to change it because Venice isn't going to be here in 20, in our lifetime. Uh, this Moses flood barrier that just stops surge. Uh, all the water is, is up above the, the stone and it's into the brick and it's crumbling. Crazy. Well, amazing that you're <laughs> trying to solve for, you know, to save an, you know, an amazing city. So can't wait to see. So is that, what's kind of the process, the timeline for that? I mean, it seems like a massive undertaking. So we just, uh, it was presented at the VS, uh, Venice Biennale. Um, uh, we've got a, uh, NGO that has a, a really amazing underlay, very important architectural firm there, a significant firm there. And, uh, we're aiming towards again, getting the community co-creation process going to begin to imagine a different future for, for Venice. Um, uh, and that I think is with all our clients is how do we begin to, to imagine a better future and, and we can do that. And you work across hospitality, you work across uh, urban planning, you work across education, and obviously healthcare. How do these disciplines inform each other in your office? I mean, are you taking ideas and cross-pollinating? Is it, you know, I mean, obviously there's, all of them have your underlying, you know, cause for health and, you know, how can buildings do better? But how does that enrich your process, your thinking, your designs by looking at all these different disciplines? Well, it's amazing because, um, you know, healthcare on the ones we we did, uh, I think one of only six radiation treatment bunkers in the world that has a massive skylight in it. So when you walk in and you're, you're at one of the most crucial times of, of your life, uh, that skylight comes down onto a garden. And so you see the, if the, if a cloud goes in front of the sun, the room begins to pulsate, right? What does that communicate? Life. All it communicates is the idea of life. And I think uh, it's very human. And I think if you, you look at places that, that we learn, how do you create places that there's a sense of, of belonging? When you look into the hospitality side of things, what's the idea of authenticity? Um, and all of these things come back to is we need to view the spaces we create as a relationship. What I mean by that is think of a row, a street that has a very thin sidewalk, no trees, no benches. You know, the retail's boarded up and, and trees are zooming, zooming past or cars are, are zooming past. Think of a street that maybe has cobblestones. It has street trees. It has cafes. It has a bench to sit on. If you would, if you would characterize that as a personal relationship, well, the first one is abuse. And, and the, the second one is, is generous. The whole idea of generosity and authenticity, um, uh, thinking of our places, viewing them as a relationship. And so the next time you look at a building, look at it through the lens of saying, okay, if I was going to see this space, is it authentic or is it shallow? You know, is it loud and flashy or is it in, is, is embracing? Think of a natural relationship where you and I just want to sit and have a coffee and talk and spend time with, or is the space communicating something else? And I think that's the basis of all of these things we work across that begin to cross-pollinate at a city scale or at a, at a very intimate scale of a room. 
Is there one part of the process you love the most? Like, is it that initial kind of concept? Is it seeing it come to life? Is it getting in the details? There's really two, and they're equally the same. And 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 the first one is this co-creation with 40 people and the dynamics. And so I think it's sort of the birthing of a project, seeing something that that comes to life that was never imagined before. That part is fantastic. And the other side, in fact, with this this butterfly in Jerusalem, it's under construction. Uh, and whenever there's a, a site, I'm always on site uh, uh, talking to the trades, seeing it going up and learning the building and the craft side of it. That's on major projects or, or minor projects. I spend a lot of time there because I can absorb but also I can begin to see we work extensively. I work all in physical models. We have a lot of computer models and the rest. But so I can put it together, take it apart. When you get onto the construction site, you begin to say, is it the way that I imagined and talking to a trade and seeing um, a lot of the buildings, just the absolute enthusiasm that somebody says, you know, I've never done this before. And they want to talk and they want to spend time and, and they want to take their family here to come and see it because we've just finished a ceiling that is a wooden ceiling that is, is like the wave of a water that has over 200 pieces. The radiuses are all different. And when you walk into it, it's as if it is like water or under a rippling tree. The guy who's the millwork guy, I uh, was so excited about doing it, and I was so excited about learning from him, uh, and it was fantastic. And so I think both the the birthing, as well as as uh, engaging with the tra- the the trades and seeing things coming to life, uh, is what uh, stimulates me. Love it, well, and it's, it must be so cool too to be creating something that people who do this for a living create these things for a living are getting excited, right? Like they're seeing something different They're, You know, it's a new way of looking at, uh, at an old problem. Right. But that's that, that then translates into the people that are using the building that say, you know, this, this one building looks, looks tree-like. And when you walk in, um, you, you watch people's eyes go up and it, uh, it is very natural in, in the bases, but people just, I think that's important that um, that's what we need to do is is inspire hope um, um, in, a, in a world where we're very much, you know, focused on our, our, our phones, um, back to the idea of spaces and neutral, that when you come into something, maybe you don't know what the difference is, but you think there's something different here and there's something that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling different as a result of it. And that's what we need to do because often uh, sometimes it can be the exact opposite that it makes us feel uncomfortable. Um, so. Amazing. Well, we always end this uh, podcast with uh, the question that is um, the name of the podcast. So what has been, or what are your greatest lessons learned? Uh, I think the the greatest lesson is to believe that there's water in the swimming pool. And what I mean by that is when we're early in our career, when we're starting out, you're standing on a diving board and you don't know if there's water in the pool. You think you're going to jump in and, and you're going to hit the bottom. Or the question is, are you going to be able to swim? Or is the water cold or is it hot or is it what it is? But you have to jump. 
And you have to fundamentally believe that you can jump off the board. There will be water. It may not be warm the way you thought it might be cold or it might be fantastic. But I believe fundamentally, and I have found throughout my career that there always is water. And the other piece is that often these things that are a setback that you didn't get that job or you didn't get that opportunity. What I found is usually when you think, oh, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. In fact, it's quite the opposite. And it, if you're open to, to beginning to look and discover, you may very well find that it has created a fork in the road that has opened something that you would never, ever imagine have, have doing. So jump off the diving board and take these things that are often very disheartening and they still happen. Uh, and be open that that they will take you into a path that is the next extraordinary chapter that you'd never imagine. Amazing advice. I love that. And I've never heard that. So I might steal that down the road, but that is like such a great announcement. Please do. Yes. Um, Ty, I loved catching up with you. Thank you so much for taking the time today and um, congrats on all the amazing work that you're doing. Can't wait to see it all. Uh, some of these newer projects come to life. And how fantastic to see you and, and more so that luxury of being able to, to spend some time with somebody in a, in a, in a, a very a, a close discussion. It's, uh, it's really a, a high point of the day. So well, enjoy. Yes. Lovely to see you. Thanks for listening to Hospitality Designs, What I've Learned. If you like what you've heard, subscribe and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find full episodes and transcripts at hospitalitydesign.com.